Welcome to Brazilian Politics, the podcast where three political analysts talk about all things Brazilian politics. This week, we will discuss the continued progress of pension reform, upcoming challenges for the Bolsonaro administration, and Brazil's foreign policy. This podcast is brought to you by Arco Advice, Brazil's leading political risk and public affairs company. With over three decades of experience in Brasilia and offices in the United States, Arco can help your company navigate the complex political scenario in Brazil. Visit arcobrazil.com. Welcome to Brazilian Politics. It's good to be back. I'm Michael Lopez, and I'm joined by my colleagues Lucas and Thiago Aragão. Thank you for joining us again. Great pleasure to be here, Michael. Hello, everyone. Nice to be back. All right. So it took a while, but the pension reform proposal finally was approved in the Constitution and Justice Committee, or the CCJ, as it is known in Brazil. And now, in the words of Sean Carter, it's on to the next one. Uh, before we move into discussion of the special committee in the lower house, where Paulo Guedes is speaking as we record this podcast, I want to discuss the CCJ for a second. To give our listeners an idea of just how long this took to go through this committee, Bolsonaro's proposal took 62 days to leave the CCJ committee, which on paper is only responsible for analyzing the constitutionality and admissibility of the proposal. Temer's proposal only spent nine days in the CCJ. Fernando Henrique Cardoso's proposal took 30 days. Lula's spent 37 days in the committee. What was the cause of this delay in the CCJ, and how does it relate to the Bolsonaro administration's way of dealing with Congress? Michael, I think the beginning, and still is a problem, governability was even a greater challenge when Bolsonaro was adapting to the Uh, to his position, especially with the strong narrative that he would not uh, negotiate. For quite a while, he created a parallel between negotiation and wrongdoing when necessarily this is not the case. You can still negotiate with Congress in other ways that you can respect your electoral promise of not engaging in pork barreling and horse trading. At the same time, I feel that the, the party that Bolsonaro is a member of that has a lot of, of newcomers in Congress, as well as some other parties that support very passionately the pension reform, such as the Novo, they were too eager and excited about defending the pension reform. I've said this before here in the Brazilian Politics Podcast, and I'll say, say it again. There's a, a cliche in Brasilia that says something like, the opposition likes theatrics, the government likes results. I remember watching the first initial steps of the CCJ and a lot of the members of the PSL were using their time to, to, to speak at the committee to defend the proposal when normally governments use the time not to speak, just to vote in order to accelerate. So I think it was a mix of the uh, some eagerness, a bit of, of, of being naive and obviously uh, the whole beginning of the government's governability which had a lot of issues, including Carlos Bolsonaro attacking the Congress, attacking Rodrigo Maia. And, and I think these were the main problems in the beginning of the governability and in the CCJ. Michael, uh, to complement what Lucas just said, I think that the government is, is beginning to learn a little bit of the dynamics to approve a pension reform. 
often does not respect the target of timing that uh, the executive wants. Particularly when we look at uh, an approval of such a complex issue as the pension reform, the government perhaps was over-optimistic in regards of the timing and the solidity of their allied base. More than that, the government perhaps believed too much that the simple merit of the issue was enough for it to make the individuals who are undecided within the par- inside the parliament to vote in favor of the reform. I think that right now the government is trying to make a better uh, approach of communication to the parties, to the congressmen. We still see a lot of useless uh, discussion happening through the social medias that uh, weakens a little bit some of the, the capability to negotiate. But uh, the expectation is is that perhaps the government will be able to move forward as it's expected. And the major question for us to to ask further down the line is the size of the impact of the pension reform and not necessarily whether it's going to be approved or not. My view is that it will. Thank you, Thiago. Indeed, a lot of the discussions around pension reform are always uh, followed by some sort of estimate as to how big the savings over 10 years will be with this reform. Um, And now that it's left the Constitution and Justice Committee, it's moved over to the Special Committee. Uh, This is where the actual merit of the proposal is to be discussed, like Lucas very rightly said. And looking at the Special Committee, we already have some decisions. We have the rapporteur selected. We have the president of the committee selected. Could you explain how this Special Committee works to our listeners and then Uh, Let us know what your perspectives are for for work in this committee, given the selection of the rapporteur and the selection of the president of the committee. Michael, the special committee is a committee that is destined to discuss the merits of the bill much more than uh, the Constitution and Justice Committee, although the CCJ did go into some merit. Uh, So we expect the dilution uh, to start appearing more uh, in the discussions on the special committee. I also expect... Uh, a, a heavier lobbying efforts from public servants that were quite quiet in the Constitution and Justice Committee. This is a committee that has uh, 40 sessions to discuss the pension reform. So it's a, a committee that has a, a deadline, although not a deadline in terms of dates, but a deadline in terms of sessions, 40 sessions. Um, we expect about three to four sessions a week which would make the commission last for around 60 days. Uh, I think this is a a viable number. I also believe that the choices of the rapporteur and the president were clearly choices made by Rodrigo Maia that wanted to uh, bring the PSTB together uh, to the debate. Rodrigo Maia is very interested in having the pension reform approved. He uh, chose... Uh, a rapporteur from the PSTB to bring them on board and they chose a president from the Centrão, the big center to also uh, give legitimacy to this big bulk of, of, of votes, although obviously it doesn't necessarily mean that all of them are on board, but it's just a way to you know, uh, make them in a special position and, and, and help the conversation. I think this will be a committee that will last about 60 days a lot of merits being discussed 
Um, and I think the government has to be very, very uh, active in the in the committee because it's a very tricky committee, much harder than the CCJ because obviously it's where it's an arena where a lot of the public servers will use their political influence to try to lobby the the decisions to their side. And one thing that we also can expect is that the we don't have only the opposition as a problem to to the government and to the allied base. There is this congressman called uh, Paulinho da Força, uh, which is from a party called Solidariedade in the state of Sao Paulo. He made some remarks this week that exemplifies how this is not a black or white or yes and no matter. He was arguing that if the pension reform approved at the end of the year saves a substantial amount of money, and he mentioned around 800 billion reais, this would guarantee and assure the re-election of Bolsonaro three years before time. And he says that this is a threat for his views and the views of the opposition. So he believes that there should be an articulation among the individuals who are not necessarily fully against the reform, but hold a position of uh, opposition towards the president that perhaps the approval of a reform around 500 billion or 600 billion could be efficient to the Ministry of Economy, but enough that wouldn't assure a re-election. So this type of narrative adds another layer of difficulty for the government, which is the, the narrative that is in favor of a pension reform, but not in favor of the best pension reform. And this is as dangerous as being against. Tiago, I'm glad you brought up this statement because that was actually a part of my next question. This uh, sincericide, uh, to use a, a directly translated term from Portuguese to English, meaning basically suicide by sincerity. Um, with these statements, I, I wanted to get Lucas' take on this because I think this is, is, is an important issue. Is the pension reform proposal being looked at inside of Congress in an electoral way? Is Congress or the government, is anyone looking at pension reform from this angle, thinking about the political implications of economic recovery for 2022 or for the municipal elections? Michael, I think so. But to be completely honest, uh, a lot of congressmen are always looking uh, for difficulties to sell Uh, their solutions, you know, and to negotiate and to leverage. Um, I, I understand, and when I say understand, I know where he's coming from, and I, and I, and I, and I see his um, decision-making process mentally of Paulinho da Força, the congressman from Solidariedade, who said such thing. But at the end of the day, I mean, you're speaking about a first-year mandate when you have three years to go. Uh, I think that it's a premature to say that this would re-elect Bolsonaro automatically. What I think is the Congress and a lot of congressmen that are living in areas where the electorate do not understand well the pension reform are uh, always trying to find a way to get some leverage in order, in order to, and I open air quotes here, sell their votes or deliver their votes. This has been happening throughout our history. It's normal. So I think that this is more an electoral narrative to gain leverage than a real, real fear. Uh, because I think it's too early to say such thing. 
And I don't believe that this will be the, the, this, the main decision-making factor in the size of, of the pension reform. I think it will depend much more on the government's capacity to negotiate. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you for that. Um, now, just uh, for t- moving on from pension reform to a, a little broader thing, um, the president of the special committee, Marcelo Ramos, a couple weeks ago in a breakfast with journalists, said that after the news of his selection to preside over this controversial committee came out in the press, his mom called him to ask him why he got mixed up in this situation. And, and his answer was very interesting. He said, there is no great navigator that owes his reputation to calm waters. So it seems like he's up to the challenge, but what about the government? The, this administration seems to be perpetually wading in and operating in turbulent waters. What, what does this administration have to do to become a great navigator? Michael, for this, this administration to become a great navigator, they need to stop troubling their own waters. Uh, usually an administration faces the, the normal problems that any administration faces, which is the domestic conjecture, the dynamics of the economy, the international political and geopolitical conjecture, the relationship between the parties, between the decision makers, between the opinion makers. When a government is successful is when he's able to manage all those relationships at a time that things are also working positively on their behalf and when they have a very clear agenda that they can softly impose within the other powers of the of the uh, state of the country and also the decision and opinion makers. The main difficulty now is for this government to cease creating problems for themselves. I think that this is the number one thing that has to be done. Second is for a, a reality check in relation to the deep difficulties of approving and moving forward with certain things. And this reality check involves understanding the equality of powers, that the Congress holds an equal power to the executive. So I think that the government, by having a clearer agenda, by having a clear territory of the, in which each decision maker within the executive, whether it's Paulo Guedes, whether it's Sergio Moro, whether it's Jair Bolsonaro, whether are the sons, in which they understand that their role doesn't necessarily overlaps with the role of the following. So I think that understanding those things are critical for this government to move forward, not only the pension reform, but other highly complex issues that are within the agenda of this administration, the privatizations, the future tax reform, uh, among other things. Thank you, Thiago. Indeed, uh, the, the, the challenge is considerable for them to uh, be able to, to set themselves up as these great navigators because the waters definitely are turbulent right now. But uh, moving on uh, from, from these uh, specific situations, uh, a couple weeks ago in late April, Sani Ibopi released an opinion poll on the Bolsonaro administration. And at first glance, it does not seem very positive for this government. It showed that Bolsonaro has the worst approval rating of any newly elected president since the redemocratization. 
Colo, Fernando Henrique, Lula, and Dilma had better approval ratings at this point than Bolsonaro. But of course, this is a poll, there, there's more to it. So as political analysts, how do you see this poll and how does it affect the political environment as a whole, uh, especially given the timing of what the government is trying to do in Congress right now? Michael, I think that we are in a deeply divided and polarized country. So I think whoever comes in at this point, especially when they uh, bring so much love and hatred, uh, depending on who you're talking to, will invariably have a political capital for good and a political capital for bad. I think that if we're speaking about Bolsonaro or Lula or someone from the left or someone from the right, they will be invariably uh, having a, a portion of their electorate who are absolutely against uh, their policies. And they would be against them regardless of uh, what is uh, uh, being proposed in terms of public policy. Uh, I think this is the first point. The second point, I think that obviously a low popularity, and we're not speaking yet of a low popularity of President uh, Bolsonaro. Uh, it's definitely worrying that he lost a lot of support that said that he was doing a good administration and went to the regular but there's still two-thirds of the population that say that he's doing either a good job or a regular job. So I think he is comfortable, but I would be worried because if the regulars start migrating more aggressively towards the, the, the negative, especially in the next months until the pension reform, the Congress will use this as leverage to dilute the pension reform even further, ask for more, and put uh, the president in crossroads. So definitely having a good portion of regular and good will give him more uh, easiness in the, in the situation of uh, approving the pension reform. And Michael, um, we are right now in turbulent times, politically speaking, and not only in Brazil, but in many countries of the world in which the polarization is also very strong because it's based not on the things that you believe, but it's based on the things that you hate. So the popularity of a president used to be more stable when the population evaluated if they liked or not based on the positive aspects of the administration. Right now, the way that the population reacts to a president is simply based on the negativity produced by that administration. So basically, instead of counting the, po the points the part of the population counts the mistakes in order to position themselves in favor, against, or regular uh, towards an administration. So it is very, very hard for any administration in the Western Hemisphere with the speed in which information is spread through the social medias, uh, in way, based on the way that these uh, uh, presidents and ministers and congressmen communicate through the social medias, the volume of information given and offered raises the amount of times per day that the citizens can evaluate whether they like or not what is being presented to them. So the, 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 the fluctuation and the volatility of liking it or not is something that occurs in a much higher speed today than it used to be in the past. 
Thank you for that, Chago. And public opinion really isn't the only challenge that uh, Bolsonaro has facing him. Over the next 30 days, the government will face a long list of pending provisional measures. By June 3rd, 13 provisional measures are set to expire, and several of them involve a considerable degree of complexity. Uh, only three of these were drafted by Bolsonaro, and the rest are left over from Michel Temer's administration. Um, could you help explain to our listeners how these provisional measures work in Brazil and some of the more controversial measures that could be challenges for this administration in Congress this month? Michael, provisional, me provisional measures are something that um, the president has exclusivity on proposing. They are effective immediately once they are signed by the president, but they still have to go through congressional approval, who has the power to reject them, which would then uh, remove the effectiveness of the period in which it was valid. They have to be voted by the Congress. Uh, they have a time frame to be voted by the Congress. So if they're not voted, uh, they, they lose their validity, even if they're not rejected just by simply being ignored. Uh, and there's several provisional measures to be uh, that, that are losing validity in the next couple of weeks, even uh, uh, very close by. Some of them are very important. We have a provisional measure uh, which made the reshaping of the ministerial administration of this government, meaning that President Bolsonaro, for instance, took COAFI, which analyzes economic uh, uh, activity among private and and, and and, and, and individuals and companies, which is a very good tool to understand if there are corruption or wrongdoing among uh, some people or some companies, from the Ministry of Economy to the Ministry of Justice, Sergio Moro, which created a lot of resistance among politicians, which thought that it could be a risk for the past that they have regarding the car wash operation. We also have a provisional measure that allows uh, sewage, water treatment, to be operated by private companies, not only public companies as it currently is in Brazil. Uh, this also faces resistance, especially by mayors, because they are able to operate in their municipality the sewage system and use it politically. Uh, for instance, the sewage system, the water treatment provisional measure, uh, has to be voted until June 3rd. The market is waiting for it anxiously, and if it's not voted, uh, it loses its validity. Uh, also important to mention that provisional measures have to be voted by the House and by the Senate, and they require a simple majority, uh, half plus one, if you have half uh, of the congressmen in, in, in the House at the time of the vote. Just to finalize, I think the next month, where we have 13 provisional measures to be voted or, or else to lose validity, will be a great test uh, for the government to organize their allied base, but it will also be a great moment for uh, the, the congressman to send signals uh, to the uh, congressman, to the president. So I think it will be a moment of volatility in the market and a moment for the government to show if they're bringing the allied base together or if the government is losing them uh, to, uh, to pressure. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you for that. For our last segment, I think we have to discuss and we have to address foreign policy. And uh, in, in Brazil's foreign policy right now, there's lots to talk about. There's the political, economic, and social crisis in Venezuela. 
There are the elections in Argentina. We had the speech given by our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Ernesto Araujo, at the graduation ceremony for new diplomats, um, where he discussed what he sees as, as, as is needed in Brazil's foreign policy. So I'll, I'll keep it open-ended here, but is there anything you'd like to point out or focus on in terms of Brazil's foreign policy? Michael, Brazil's foreign policy became famous worldwide for being pragmatic, for being multilateral, and for really establishing a positive reputation of Brazil in the world. Um, of course, during many, many times, uh, most years, we had uh, the turbulence that we had in the region, in, in South America in particular, was more caused uh, were domestic problems that were happening in several of our neighbors that hardly extrapolated the borders of these countries. One example is the, is the war at the Malvinas uh, in 1982. With the Venezuela issue, perhaps is the moment that the Brazilian foreign policy is going to be tested in the most complicated manner um, throughout the last many years. Why? Because in one side, we have the new behavior of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is more hawkish in comparison to, uh, to the past and in alignment with the U.S. foreign policy, not only towards Venezuela, but the way that they look at the world, in which you have to be aggressive and you need to impose your power in order to lead to change. On another hand, we have the Brazilian military that, different from the U.S. military, is not a hawkish uh, military with military behavior. They tend to be pragmatic, and more than that, they know that if there is an escalation in the situation with Venezuela, they will be the ones that will have to move forward and be involved in something that they don't believe that they should. So I think that this generates some contradiction and some conflict that we are seeing in Brazil over the past days, which is the attempt to impose this new view of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, of a more hawkish view, in comparison to the more pragmatic view that the military guys uh, defend in relation to Venezuela in particular, that is more aligned with Brazil's historical position in issues throughout uh, the region. When we look at Argentina, Argentina is unfortunately is a cycle of self-sabotage that independently of the figure leading the country, whether it's someone representing the right, representing the left, representing conservatives, representing liberals, the underlying problem in Argentina is trust, is confidence. And not only the trust from the foreign market towards Argentina, but the trust of their own citizens towards their own currency and their own decision makers. If in the past, around 2000 and 2001, the risk of the crisis in Argentina entering Brazil and spreading throughout Brazil, causing some problems uh, to our economy, was a real problem, Right now, I don't see this happening anymore. We are light years ahead of Argentina in economic sophistication, uh, in, in the amount, in the size of our economy, the size of our, the, the way that our banking system functions, the modernity, how our central bank is solid. So 
it's going to be damaging if the situation in Argentina deteriorates for our political relations, more than that for our commercial relations, but, uh, and it's very unfortunate to see a friendly country in a situation like that, but hardly it will be a problem that will, uh, that runs the risk of invading Brazil and creating also problems for our economy. Thank you for that, Thiago. Uh, that will do it for this episode of Brazilian Politics. I want to thank uh, Thiago and Lucas for taking part in the podcast and especially thank our listeners for tuning in. Please tune in next week for more on Brazilian politics. Thank you. <laughs>